Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome back to the HBO official Band of Brothers podcast. This is Roger Bennett. I say flash, you say thunder. Episode 10. Points. Yes, the final instalment of Band of Brothers. The men of Easy Company have run Curahy, plummeted through the flak-filled skies of Normandy, liberated Eindhoven, survive that hellscape of Baston and fought their way through France into Germany. We now find them in Austria, where Dick Winters and Lewis Nixon finally broach a topic they never dared even ask themselves during the battle to liberate Europe. What do you think you'll do after this? I get some breakfast. No, after, after. With no enemy left to fight, the downtime means... This is an episode featuring bored men with access to too many lethal weapons, too much alcohol and excess free time. A dangerous, dangerous cocktail that combined with the threat of redeployment to the Pacific Theatre for those without the requisite points to go home means there's a dark cloud hanging over the sunny Austrian countryside. The enemy had surrendered, but somehow men were still dying. Young men who wanted to be home with their families by now who'd served with distinction since before Normandy were stuck here because they didn't have the points. A weight that is lifted in a final glorious set piece when Major Winters interrupts that company baseball game to break news that will force the men of Easy Company to begin to confront an entirely new challenge. This morning, President Truman received the unconditional surrender from the Japanese. War's over. Regardless of points, medals, or wounds, each man in the 101st Airborne would be going home. Each of us would be forever connected by our shared experience. And each would have to rejoin the world as best he could. And so, we learn what will become of each of our heroes, where and how they lived out their lives. Bull Ranneman was one of the best soldiers I ever had. He went into the earth moving business in Arkansas. He's still there. In addition to providing the closure that we all craved, Points teaches us perhaps the most indelible lesson of the entire series. Major Winters. Captain Sobel. We salute the rank, not the man. My guest today is probably the only old Etonian in that school's vaunted 581-year history ever to have played a bona fide All-American war hero. 
Major Richard Dick Winters, the commanding officer of Easy Company, a man who dropped behind enemy lines on D-Day, armed only with a knife, and then employing a leadership style defined by the two words, survived Operation Market Garden and the Battle of the Bulge before ending the war with the capture of Hitler's eagle's nest at Berchtesgaden, Germany. My guest is the centrifugal force of the entire Band of Brothers series, playing Winters in an astonishing performance in which so much was conveyed with tremendous economy in terms of both word and emotion. It's an incredible joy to welcome Mr. Damien Lewis. Hello, Roger. What an introduction. Thank you. If ever a man deserves one, it's you, Damien. First big question, hard hitter first. At the top of the episode, we meet you in your swimmies where Nixon has trapped you down. Yeah, I heard reports about a red-headed Eskimo. Thought I'd check it out. Come to join me for a morning swim? <laughs> yeah. You then dive headfirst into an Austrian lake. How bloody cold was that water? Because you dived, Damien. It was a 10.0. <laughs> yes, I'm glad I didn't have my budgie smugglers on. Although not far <laughs> off. That 1940s high cut short, shall we say. It was very, very cold, Roger, is the answer to that. In fact, I got hypothermic. We swam all day and I was only allowed in the water for a minute at a time. And I was rubbed in goose fat. I was covered in goose lard in order to retain some heat. But of course, you're never anywhere just for a minute when you're filming. They say, well, can you just do one more lap round? And before you knew what happened, you were there three or four minutes. I had this curious sensation of being toweled down on the boat and my whole body started rattling. And I felt this sort of ice cold column right through the middle of my body. But my extremities feeling warm, everything else feeling warm. And then it doing a complete reverse as the cold left the centre of my body and the warmth reappeared in the centre, sort of column of my body. The rest of me, then I just started sort of shaking. My extremities started shaking as they became freezing cold before I sort of returned to normal temperature. I was told later that is the beginning of a hypothermic reaction. So that's how cold it was. It's a glamorous life showbiz, Damien. But let's go back to the beginning. You're casting. You're a 29-year-old bloke when you first pursued a role in Band of Brothers. A man with a solid resume, a British television miniseries mainstay. You had a steady flow of television, stage work. When you began that journey to Winters, you described yourself as just another pale Englishman doing multiple auditions in a damp basement in Soho. You said every single actor in London under 30 who still has both his legs is being seen but you kept getting callback after callback. Were you always reading for Dick Winters and when did you realise the producers were serious about you? No, I wasn't always reading for Dick Winters because they didn't have all the scripts at that point. They didn't have enough material for us to read. And some of the material we were reading never made it to the final 10 episodes. And we were just given chunks of dialogue to read. And for me, after the first time, they put me straight on to Dick Winters. I didn't know the relevance of that or the significance of that initially. I'd only had agent type breakdowns. I hadn't read Band of Brothers yet. So it was right at the beginning. Yeah. And then I started reading for Dick Winters and I just read for this guy, Dick Winters, and I came out and then a friend of mine mentioned to me, he said, are you going out for Band of Brothers? I said, yeah, we're all going out for Band of Brothers. 
And he said, you know, just to go and gather dust on another studio shelf in LA, yet another tape. He said, he's the main part. And I was going, what? Is he really? It was exciting. And then I went back again, and then they gave me a bit of Dick Winters on the third time. And I went back a fourth time. But this went over like four months through the summer into the autumn. So each time I read, I just forgot about it and just went off and, you know, went to the pub with my friends. And I kept being called back like a month later. And then Tony Toe, the diminutive, brilliant, pocket dynamo, Prada-wearing producer who stomped through the muddy fields of Hertfordshire in his white Prada boots and his long Prada coat. Absolutely fantastic man who was driving the whole thing. He flew in and sat in one final reading. And as I did my final reading... He put the camera down, or asked the cameraman to, and he said, so, Damien, uh, how do you like to fly to LA and meet Stephen and Tom? I had a motorbike helmet. No motorbike. I used just to walk around with a helmet, just to give the impression I had a motorbike. <laughs> as a way of getting girls. No, I was picking up my motorbike helmet, and I literally, I dropped my helmet on the secretary's desk and then made a bad joke like, oh, let me just check my diary. I think I might be seeing my grandmother. <laughs> And you were asked how you prepared the accent of Winters, an American accent for these auditions. And I loved your answer. You said, my cultural heritage, if you like, is so pervaded by American pop culture. I grew up on Kojak and Columbo and Starsky and Hutch. Also, our family had cousins in Connecticut. We'd go on holiday in Portland, Maine. God, that's beautiful. So I always kind of felt pretty attached to America. I mean, you said your accent started out at the beginning of the auditions as Sylvester Stallone. It moved through a Jimmy Stewart period, but then ventured into James Kahn and the Godfather territory, Damien. It's quite a journey. <laughs> God, I must have really been trying to fill up an interview with, with all that, all that, all that <laughs> shenanigans. What was I saying? I love it, though. You did it. You had an inner sense of an American identity to tap into from multiple sources. Probably the biggest influence is my godfather, who is, bless him, still alive. He's 96 years old. He was a lecturer at Yale University, and he was my dad's best man at his wedding, and he came for Christmas every Christmas and would take me out for an all-American burger. That was my big treat every Christmas. I was always surrounded by American accents, beyond just culture. Beyond that, I think it's just fluke. I think I just had a good ear for the accent. And I did go through lots of different accents. In fact, when HBO got the first rushes of us all doing our different accents, because everyone had to deploy an accent that wasn't theirs. Even the American boys were deploying different regional accents. HBO just said, it's like the Tower of Babel. We can't understand what anyone... <laughs> we were about 35 totally different dialects here. And we can't understand what's going on. Can everyone just use a standardised American accent? So we all had to go away and look that up, find out what that was. Dick just had quite a simple Midwest conservative accent. He was actually from Pennsylvania. He wasn't Midwestern, but it was just a very simple, there was no flourish to it. Very conservative. Came out of his Dutch Mennonite upbringing, his conservative religious upbringing. It wasn't that it was clipped, but it was no frills. That's just what I tried to go for. He said to you, do you have your passport? Which is dictionary definition, a quintessential Hollywood moment. You head to LA, flights, hotels, limos. You find yourself in Spielberg's office in Hollywood. I need to know, what was that like for you? Was it out of body? Or were you just like laughing at the whole thing because it was so different to the London theatre scene? Because I believe you tried to warm the room up with a joke and it got off to a bit of a slow start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I, I, I forget if you're if you're referring to my bad aeroplane joke and flying. <laughs> and they said thanks for flying out here, me, and I said yeah, but my arms are a bit sore. <laughs> That's such an English response, such an English joke. The sound of tumbleweed in the room, yeah, and just one sort of swinging saloon door creaking. That was it. Yeah, if there'd been a record player on at that moment, it would have stopped. <laughs> When Tony in Soho said, how would you like to go? The most Hollywood moment of the whole thing was him just immediately calling L.A. and just going, we need flights booked for Damien Lewis tomorrow. B.A., doesn't matter, whatever. American Airlines, get him there tomorrow. It's just the whole thing word into action around me. And when I got to L.A., they said, you're staying in somewhere called Shutters on the Beach. And I didn't know anything about it. It was just a young kid. So I arrive at Shutters on the Beach and I'm looking at it going, bloody hell, this is... Uh, that's quite a serious hotel. And I go and see my room and it's a really nice room. And I'm just thinking, wow, they've spent some money on me. And I was just starting to think, holy crap, this could be happening. Otherwise, why treat me so nicely? But the moment I get there, the very first day I get there, because I go back for a second day, I get to the casting suites, which are in Santa Monica, in one of those typical sort of low rise white box L.A. buildings. And there is a man, kid sitting outside the office, who, I kid you not, is the spitting image of Dick Winters. And I see him and I look at him and I go, well, that's a, just a bad joke, isn't it? They've, they've put me up in a nice hotel, so they brought me all the way out here just to tell me, thank you very much. We're going to give the part to this guy because, I mean, this guy is, it's like Dick Winters' love child. He is the spitting image. Anyway, he goes in. He's a Canadian actor. I forget his name. He comes out five minutes later, having had a chat, looks me in the eye. And I'll never forget this. It was most generous. He just looked me in and I said, good luck with it, man. All the luck. And then he just went away. And I just thought, oh, that threw me again. My hopes were sort of picked up again. I walked in and then I just had this meeting. Yeah. With Stephen, who just sat behind an old camcorder, sat on his shoulder for the whole thing we talked about football we talked about different stuff we talked about i'd played hamlet not i'd played hamlet in london but i was laertes in ray fines's production of hamlet on broadway a few years earlier and they'd all seen it so we were talking about that and that was it and they said thank you goodbye and i went away and waited to hear I mean, it is fascinating. You were in that room with Hanks with Spielberg talking about football in an audition room covered in photos of the real Dick Winters. An actor who was the spitting image of the real Dick Winters yeah. had just exited. He looked like Dick Winters. You don't. No. What do you think they saw in you that gave you the edge? How do you understand it? You, a fine, upstanding English public school boy playing a blue-collar American hero. Tony Toe revealed you know later in our friendship he just said after your first reading i knew you were winters he said i knew you were our winters and i said why much like you're asking me why and i think it's to do with the fact that i am from a private school background and i think it's to do with i think there was probably up against all those hip American actors, LA actors, most of whom were doing screen work. And I was still putting on pairs of tights and doing the Royal Shakespeare Company. I think there was something, I mean, to be frank, probably just a bit stiff about me. I was probably a bit old fashioned and a bit stiff and a bit uncool. <laughs> just 
I was the least cool person. They auditioned basically and said, right, let's make him the Dutch Mennonite, conservative, <laughs> non-drinking, non-smoking guy from the 1930s. He's our guy. I think that was it. I think there was something in just the way I must have held myself and walked into that room that seemed old-fashioned and sort of conservative, I guess. Yeah, I was about as far from Jimmy Dean as you could get, I think, is what happened. <laughs> you said a 1940s American war hero, an enigmatic man who doesn't say very much, might actually be closer in spirit and speech to an Englishman than you might suspect. I do think there's a sense of old-fashionedness that you bring to the role that ultimately defined it. But I love the story that when Hanks announced in a room he was going to give you the part, he said, this is so Hanks, you're going to be the first ever redheaded film star, which to me is a bit Rupert Grint erasure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was like, Tom was fantastic through the whole process. He was the guy who stood up when we went to Longmore camp for our training, which was essentially an immersive, naturalistic method rehearsal for two weeks, 10 days, two weeks, where we remained in character for the whole time, which was pretty bloody confusing for me because I had to work out a lot of stuff quite quickly because I was supposed to be in charge. I remember Tom standing there at the beginning and just saying, look, just think of this as not just another gig, but what we're creating here is a social document to honour the memories of these men and a critical part of all our history. It was actually very inspirational and moving when he made that speech. And yeah, he did. He used to rib me. He's like, you're going to be the first redheaded movie star. Male, maybe he should have added. <laughs> all I could think of when he said that was Eric Stoltz. I just kept thinking, oh, poor old Eric. Oh, the mask. You got the nod from Hanks and Spielberg, but you still had to win over, perhaps even more dauntingly, the real-life Dick Winters, who was then aged 81. What was that like, Winters meeting Winters? Dick's memories of the war and the way he spoke about it was procedural. He was unquestionably one of the finest soldiers of his generation. The men adored him because they trusted him. If he wasn't easy to adore in person, they adored the fact that if Dick said, right, we're going on a mission, all the men would put their hand up because firstly, there is a pretty bloody good chance you'd get the mission accomplished. And there was also a pretty bloody good chance you'd get back alive. And that was a critical part of the equation for a lot of them. And so they trusted him. He was a consummate soldier. So when I spoke to Dick and I've got four files of his recollections of the war and what he achieved in the war diaries but they're not emotional diaries they're not how i felt you weren't going to sit in the bar till three o'clock with dick in the morning drinking whiskey and ending up crying and weeping you did that with babe you did that with bill wild bill and i know frank and scott and robin and those i know they did all of that a lot my experience of band of brothers through dick was a far more sort of procedural, practical recollection of what happened during each week of the war and why decisions were taken and why they were important. Also, he was very suspicious of this at the outset. He thought, you know, they were going to Hollywoodize a story that was personal to him. And so he was reluctant at first. He was won over, I think, by our sincerity to serve the memory of him and Easy Company properly. He was humble. He, he wasn't without ego. I'll say that. He wasn't without ego. 
but it just worked in a different kind of way. He's very proud of what he did. They wanted to erect a leadership statue to him in Normandy, which I actually went to and helped open a few years ago. And they wanted to model it on him, on his features. And he said, no, it must be a blank soldier. I don't want it modelled on me because I don't want to be sort of on a pedestal above the rest. And I think his wishes were ignored, actually, because it does look, <laughs> it doesn't quite look like it. <laughs> They modelled it on the Canadian actor who didn't get the part, David. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but when you met him, he was out on his farm in Pennsylvania. He'd made a small fortune post-war, building an entrepreneurial chicken feed business. You know, you've said this technical procedural way he told this story without sensationalising or anecdotalising, all very operational detail. Does it tell you a lot about his generation? Uh, It's almost as if they were taught that it's weak to express emotion. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Well, certainly the way in which men nowadays approach their emotional selves is vastly different. Yes, from a man in the 1930s and 40s, and especially a man who's regimented and has been institutionalised through the army. So, yes, unquestionably. A lot of the lads did, of course, as we just talked about, you know, they were happy to talk about it and were freely emotional about their experiences. But it was, he was a commanding officer. He was the personality type to be a good commanding officer, extremely calm under fire, able to make quick decisions under duress. And a man you need in that situation, in that position, who can put away his emotional self, his more temperamental side in order to think clearly. There was actually something about war that Dick Winters was really pre-built for. Tom Hanks has told us he had one big problem with his ultimate character arc. The screenwriters made him a man who grew into the role. You know, he jumped with a degree of fear. He learned by doing. He grew into leadership because television needs character arc human development. But I believe he was displeased with a few of the early cuts saying, you made it seem like we can't even read a map. I mean, he saw himself as a complete soldier from the get-go, right? Well, do you know what? I think probably in his defence, he was. That was a conversation we had where he said in the first two or three episodes, I wasn't sure about you, but you did well, kid, is what he said to me, having looked at it for precisely that reason. It's interesting Tom said that and that the writers had discussed that because I sort of unilaterally had taken that decision myself that that needed to happen. I was probably just inferring something from the scripts. It was probably just already there, something that I saw and intuited from the scripts and so just saw that that's what needed to be played. But certainly I wanted to create an arc as well and to watch this man grow into the hero that we know today. Would he have been less interesting had he landed already the finished article, the hero? Uh, You know, this was a man who just routinely won the officers' Olympics at Tokoa. He was in better shape than anyone else. His body shape was all from body weight. He didn't really lift in a big way. So he didn't have a contemporary gym body, which I was keen to emulate. Thank God. So I think he did struggle with that initially. Uncertainty, self-doubt, growing into something heroic and victorious. I'd love to know this. When you got to know Dick... 
Did you feel similar to him? I didn't particularly, no. Our worlds were too far apart. It made me feel even more so like an actor, like an interpreter of a story and further away from any imaginings I might have had of myself as a soldier in war. When you're confronted with a war hero who has done it and you've got his private journals and he's told you exactly what he's done, you look at it and you go, well, I couldn't feel less like this man right now. There's a lovely story that you started writing a diary during the Band of Brothers legendary boot camp because Winters had written a diary in boot camp. And you wrote this. When I'm Damien Lewis, I'm nervous about the task in front of me. When I'm Dick Winters, I feel I can do anything. <laughs> there you go. Where there's a will, there's a way, you see. You just have to think it. That's the secret to all acting. Just think it. Oh, you channeled all this information into your portrayal of Winters, which you've said you attempted to pull off by channeling the classic on-screen acting approach of Steve McQueen and Gary Cooper, people who achieved a lot by doing a little. These are your words. If you set up an intensity and a stillness, you only have to show a flicker of a smile. You've also cited your other acting hero, Robert De Niro, and his listening, which gives him his mercurial quality. I can't believe people have allowed me to say all this bollocks over the years. God. <laughs> well, I would say, I would say yes. Okay, so, yeah, the central challenge was, how do you make a man who is not given to an effusive personality, is not given to demonstration, and he's a contained man of action. He's a man of few words. He only speaks when it's necessary. So how do you make that interesting? And I did go to people like that and look at films of that type of actor, people who achieved a lot saying very little or conveying a lot. But I was always, always uncertain about it. And I never was fully confident that I was pulling it off. But I stuck with it. I just said, this has got to be the way I have to play him. He's got to be still. He's got to listen and You've got to judge him by his actions and actually you allow the response of everyone around him and the reaction of everyone around him to create the hero. Don't act a hero because you look like an idiot. Yeah, that was a decision I took and I just hoped that it would be interesting in some way. But I, I was constantly telling myself, do nothing, do nothing, do nothing. Just listen. God, that's incredible. An incredible approach to life, never mind acting. Just simplicity stripping the part away. If only I'd applied it to parts of my life. <laughs> Let's talk about winters in episode 10, because it's central theme, just how difficult it is to transition from being ready for war to being ready for peace. You know, being soldiers who have no enemy to fight anymore. The drinking, the looting, the summary execution of former SS officers. Throughout it all, we grapple with Winter's decision of continuing his service in the Pacific. Colonel Sink offers him a commission. Will he do it or will he work his way back to that peace and the little farm he dreamed of at the end of Day of Days? Or possibly even working at Nixon Nitrate. What do you think went through Winter's mind as he was torn between war and duty, and peace, and family. I think Winters is torn. I, th I think Winters was a born soldier. And you see in episode five when he's relieved of his duties and he goes on leave in Paris and he's not happy. He's not happy without something to do. And I think after VE Day, and they know that there's still action out in the Pacific and 
some of them might have to go. But it's one of, by the way, the most heartbreaking, the most awful moments in the whole series when they set episode 10 up beautifully and it feels like an elegiac episode, a look back on the series and the lads are celebrating and they're in the sunny uplands of Zellum Sea and, and then suddenly Spears just delivers this bolt. General Taylor has also announced that the 101st Airborne Division will definitely be redeployed to the Pacific. So... Beginning tomorrow, at 0600 hours, we will begin training to go to war. When you're watching it with the benefit of hindsight, just thinking, oh my God, these poor boys are going to have to go on unless they have the 85 points. It's a brilliantly constructed episode like that, because from that moment in the episode, there is an undercurrent of darkness. And rather than the happiness and joy of the end of war and the spoils of war and this sort of the frivolity of raiding the wine cellars and nicking Hitler's photo <laughs> albums and getting drunk on the balcony at Bertius Garden, etc., etc. You suddenly start to see the effect of war, the poor decision-making in these men, the way in which really they're rattled and then people start dying. An American shoots at Grant, shoots him in the head. And then Janovich is run off the side of the road. It's just carelessness. But it just shows that war is never clean cut. There's never a clean cut ending, a finish to it. And this is the residue of war and it's affecting all of them. And I love that dark undercurrent through episode 10. And so Dick is left thinking, what do I do with my life? I'm a soldier and I should go to the Pacific. And for a moment, it looks like that's what he's going to do until finally we're told that VJ Day happens, you know. And he ends up in Nixon nitration works where he meets ethel who becomes his wife so it's a lovely ending you talk about the darkness and the men of easy company had seen and done terrible things ambrose wrote in his book in three years the men had seen more endured more contributed more than most men can see or endure or contribute in a lifetime if some of that is, is captured in the scene where winter says goodbye to shifty powers who's shipping out i just don't Rightly know how I'm going to explain all this. You see, I, I, I seen, I seen. Beautifully played by Peter Youngblood Hills. You just see his confusion and his the inarticulacy of a of a simple man who had had his confidence shot to pieces by then. And Dick just says, "You're a hell of a fine soldier, Shifty." There's nothing more to explain. That's his way of saying, you did good, kid, and you should hold your head up proud and don't try to explain too much. Just know that you were a great soldier and it's a beautiful paternal moment. I mean, Dick's only five, six years older than him, but it's nevertheless a paternal moment for one of his men. And it's a very warm moment. I'm very fond of that moment. Possibly the most touching scene for me, Winter's overseeing the German army surrender. The German general who addresses his troops is Wolf Karla, who played Dietrich in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he talks about words that Winters feels, I believe, about Easy Company, but could never say. He articulates the bond between his men. Die ineinander einen Zusammenhalt gefunden hat. We found in one another a bond. Wie er sich nur im Kampf entwickeln kann. It exists only in combat. Unter Kameraden. Among brothers. Die Fuchshöhlen geteilt haben. Shared foxholes. Die sich in 
schrecklichen Momenten gegenseitig gestützt haben. Die den Tod zusammen gesehen haben und gemeinsam gelitten haben. Ich bin stolz, mit euch gedient zu haben. I'm proud to have served with each and every one of you. The moment in the entire 10 hours where something is articulated, where war is ennobled and what it is to serve with men and die alongside your fellow soldiers, your fellow man, your compatriots, is articulated by a German. And that's the genius of that moment, that on both sides... People are experiencing equal pain, equal uncertainty, equal doubt and trauma. That's what Band of Brothers highlights so, so perfectly. Ambrose wrote, they found in combat the closest brotherhood they ever knew. They found selflessness. They found they could love the other guy in their foxhole more than themselves. They found that in war, men who love life would give their lives for them. And that was embodied nowhere greater than in a relationship between Winters and Nixon, that double act in Band of Brothers. Ron Livingston, so fantastic in his portrayal. How do you understand the essence of their relationship? Were they brothers? Were they rivals? Or were they just the greatest of friends? I think they were great friends from different sides of the track. I mean, Winters was, sure, he was middle class, but it was a very simple upbringing. You know, as we've touched on, Dutch Mennonite, no drinking, no smoking, no shagging, just conservative, religious, moral upbringing. And Nick's, conversely, was an Ivy League boy, Yale-educated, moneyed, successful parents with houses dotted around the place. But they found a companionship. It's interesting to note that Dick, I actually don't know the numbers, but the majority of lads in Easy Company were 19, 20, 21 years old. Dick was just five years older, but that's very telling. He'd already been through university college, as you say, 26 years old, and Nick's was closer to his age. He had similar rank. In fact, there's one point in the series where Nick's outranks Dick because he goes up to intelligence, goes into the intelligence division. There's this sort of dovetailing in and out. Nick's is such beautifully played by Ron, this slightly cavalier, Ivy League, upper class, roguish character who seems to have got through the war somehow with his humour intact. And as long as there's a bottle not too far away, you figure he can get through the day. And Dick is completely straight next to him. Opposites attracted. At the beginning of the episode, you hold up a photograph of the two of you, Winters and Nixon, you and Ron Livingston as new recruits. And I've got to say, you both look a decade younger at Takoa, still bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. What do you think, these two men, what do you think Easy Company learned in this journey? You know, a lot of these lads joined the army because they could get three square meals a day and a roof over their heads. You know, some of them were real, they were street punks. They didn't come from stable homes and solid backgrounds, good educations. The war, the army was a way out. And the reason a lot of them became paratroopers is because you got extra money to jump out of airplanes. One of the great nights I had was sitting down with Bill and Babe and one or two others, and just saying, you know, I'd only ever jumped out of aeroplanes. I didn't know what it was like to land in a plane. So when I took my family on holiday, 
after the war and we went on holidays every time we landed I was cacking my pants just sort of holding on to people around me going oh my god we're going to hit the ground we're going to hit the ground <laughs> you know it's like you'd much rather have jumped out 2,000 feet earlier and so it just shows you shows you the simple folk the simple backgrounds these guys came from so what did they learn oh my god they learned everything they learned friendship and loyalty they learned discipline and oh my god what a hard way to learn it but what an incredible way to become a man. There's a bit of envy, I think, in all of us. No one wants to go to war. But in any man, in peacetime, there must sort of somewhere deep down reside the thought that an envious thought that to become a man forged in the fire like that, in the intensity of battle, is the ultimate test and the ultimate making of a man. They saw terrible things as you alluded to earlier they had to do terrible things but my god the bond that was formed as a result of that is enviable that bond is reinforced in the last set piece of the series the baseball game so joyous and relaxed your voiceover telling us what the men of easy became but compton came back to see the company to let us know that he was all right he became a prosecutor in los angeles he convicted Sirhan Sirhan in the murder of Robert Kennedy and was later appointed to the California Court of Appeals. Lipton and Johnny Martin made real money. But the overarching realisation is the rest of the men, they became mailmen, construction workers, handymen, cab drivers. And it is incredible to me. Incredible. The core of this story, a show about some of the most remarkable Americans who ever lived. And they were truly everyman heroes, Damien. They lived you know, so-called average lives after the war, and most did not, as Shifty Powers hinted, ever tell their story. In a way, Band of Brothers told their story for them. Yeah, that's right. And I think that notoriety in the final 20 years of their life, you know, this started in 2000, 2001. Those that were alive were alive long enough to enjoy the reception to Band of Brothers. And I think they really enjoyed it. And there was a group of them that used to go to all the reunions and go around and speak to people and be fated. And how fabulous for them that that happened in their twilight years. At the very end of the episode, we have one last round of Talking Head interviews with the real soldiers of Easy. I'm just one part of the big war, that's all. One little part. And I'm proud to be a part of it. Sometimes it makes me cry. It's a truly transcendent experience because we're finally able to put faces to names to be reminded that Bill Garnier, Carwood Lipton, John Martin, Dick Winters, they were real men. And Winters tells that story of a letter he received from Mike Rainey, whose grandson asked him the question, Grandpa, were you a hero in the war? Grandpa said, no, I served in a company of heroes. These men... These men, they were most certainly heroes, Damien. What does this mean to you? How do you process this story? Yeah, they, they were heroes and every hero will give that response. I wasn't a hero. I did what I needed to do. Martin, one of those men, the end of that, just says, well, He's hoping to stay alive, that's all. Mm. That's very real. That's probably deep down as true as anything else that they did or felt. But they did stay alive. 
And they performed and acted with a professionalism, a dedication, a patriotism, a love for each other and a desire to get the job done and do it well. You know, they had a job to do. And in that respect, they were unquestionably, it was heroic day to day what they did in awful, awful situations. That's typical of a man of that generation who fought in that war saying, no, I wasn't a hero, but I served in a company of heroes. And when Dick says that, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because as I've alluded to earlier, Dick was not given to emotion. He was a very contained man. He was quite dry to talk to sometimes. And when you see his lip quiver and you see him unable to get through that quotation at the end. I cherish the memories of a question my grandson asked me the other day when he said, Grandpa, were you a hero in the war? Grandpa said no. But I served in a company of girls. I defy anyone, anyone not to well up at that moment. Do you think Band of Brothers... And the reception, the immense reception it received, changed Winter's sense of his own self, his own legacy. I think at times the circus went on around him and he he was slightly bewildered by it all, that it all sort of taken off this way. I think sometimes he enjoyed it and I think sometimes he didn't. Dick was very rigorous, intellectually very rigorous. I think as long as what was being remembered was his men's actions and what they achieved, then I think he was happy. As soon as it became a bit Hollywood and glitzy, he was less happy. But as I say, he wasn't entirely without ego as a man. You know, I mean, God bless him. Let's allow him a bit of ego after what he achieved. (laughs) So I think he was quite happy that people knew the story in the end. Absolutely. And it's so... Incredibly important, more important than ever. Sadly, Dick Winters is no longer with us. Almost all the men of Easy Company have now passed on. There's just one remaining. He's 99. Damien, you're an actor who has achieved so much in your career. You've been on hit show after hit show. You are revered in every way. But did the fact that Band of Brothers honours these men, men who when the world was staring over a cliff into the abyss and pulled it back, men who you got to know personally, does that make you feel different about this show, this role, to all your other roles and successes? Yeah, actors, we talk amongst ourselves occasionally, and you you identify jobs as gigs, which are just fun gigs. Maybe someone needed a bit of money. Maybe just, you know, the material was really good. You really wanted to do it. And then there are jobs which are life changers. They're meaningful. They transcend just being an ordinary acting job. Band of Brothers unquestionably one of those. Having the responsibility to represent these men faithfully and not let them down. I mean, just going right back to the beginning at Longmore Camp, all I could think of was, oh my God, Dick Winters used to routinely win the Officers' Olympics at Camp Tacoa. He was always first. He was first up that sodding hill. He was first down. He did more sit-ups, push-ups, press-ups, crunches than anyone else. He was in peak condition. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, I've got to come first. I've got to come first. I mustn't let down the memory of Dick Winters. And little secret, I didn't come first. I got there or thereabouts. (laughs) Let's just say 
Uh, on average, I would say out of the company of men, I was in about sort of fourth and fifth. I managed to sort of get in fourth, just out of the medals, just out of the medals. But nevertheless, gave a good account of myself. Who won? Oh, God, who was in the best, Nick? I wish they were all here. Everyone would put their hand up. <laughs> all the American boys, because you have to realise, you know, we were being cast out of London and it was a big show. We knew that it was being cast in Sydney and London and New York and LA and all around the world. But you can imagine the fever pitch that it reached in LA. So by the time the lads landed in London, they were pumped, they were focused, they were ready to go. And as I, I remember meeting them and just saying, oh, Christ, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get myself focused here and get in shape and just concentrate because these lads are ready. Last question for you, Damon. You said playing Dick Winters was life changing. You know, apart from the ability to control operational manoeuvres using just your hands, which you do magnificently throughout the entire series, what did the experience of bringing Dick Winters to the screen teach you about life? What I learned from doing Band of Brothers, we were a group of actors who came together to portray a heroic group of men. And it was just our great good fortune that we were asked to do that. The sincerity and the honesty with which we all did it is what has bonded us. We had a profound experience that transcended the normal acting gig. It became an important life experience for all of us. And that is manifested in the bond that we have now 20 years later. Whenever we see each other, if it hasn't been for five years even, there's a shorthand, there's an immediate connection, an intimacy, a recognition of what we went through and a bond. But the reason we have that is because of the importance of the work that we did, the honesty and the sincerity with which we approached it. And that's because we needed to honour meticulously the courage, the bravery, the extraordinary lives of Easy Company and the war that they had. So really, all I have to say is thank you. Thank you, Easy Company, for giving us that opportunity. Damien Lewis, thank you for your generosity of spirit and for preserving the memory that great American Richard Winters for your portrayal in Band of Brothers. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. What an honour to speak with Damien Lewis, a gent tasked with portraying Major Richard Winters, a man who is one of America's legitimately great war heroes. And what a fitting way to finish HBO's Band of Brothers podcast. It is a project that from the very beginning, it's been a dream of all of ours. It's been a great privilege to produce alongside Jonathan Williamson. Both of us will never take this opportunity for granted. As Tom Hanks told the cast before they embarked on their journey, it's more than a television show. It's, it's a social document that people will turn to hundreds of years from now when they need to learn about this remarkable group of men who came together to pull the world back from the abyss. Men who were so courageous, so selfless, they thought not of themselves, but that soldier in the foxhole next to him. And in that spirit, we want to end this podcast with the same words that end the television series itself. Words that sum up just how great this generation of men and women truly were. Mm-hmm.
remember the letter that Mike Ranney wrote me? You do. Do you remember how I ended it? I cherish the memories of a question my grandson asked me the other day when he said, Grandpa, were you a hero in the war? Grandpa said no. But I served in a company of girls. <laughs>